Well, if you have your Bibles with you, <laughs> you're doing it to me again, Rusty. What's happening, brother? He just popped the top on a monster in the back of church. <laughs> if you got your Bibles with you, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we're going to uh, continue our journey through the Scripture. As we uh, wind up this letter to the church at Corinth that Paul writes to them, he, he comes to the point in his letter where he wants to sum it all up. He wants to sum up the point, the purpose. I mean, he dealt with a lot of harsh things in this letter, a lot of difficulties, a lot of troubles that they were having in the church. And, and you know, Paul wanted to help them, guide them, direct them, show them, you know, God's plan and, and overall uh, hand in their life. And so... That's what he's been about. And as he comes to chapter 16, he's going he's gonna to bring that all around. He's going to bring it all around to, to fruition. So he, he begins in chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Chapter 16, he gets down to the offering. Now, listen, Paul was gathering an offering for the church at Jerusalem. You guys remember the church at Jerusalem, right? We read about them in the beginning of, of Acts the church in Jerusalem did something that no other church had done before. Everybody sold everything they had. They followed the example of this fellow named Barnabas, son of encouragement. He, he, he sold what he had, he gave it all to the church. And they all did that. And the church was watching out for each other's needs and, and kind of guiding them and directing them. And good things were happening. But, you know, over time, what you discover is there's always more need than what you have the ability to, to uphold on your own. And the church at Jerusalem was poor. The money ran out and it was gone. Sometimes we look at things that God brings us through and, and events that God directs us and we think, maybe I wasn't listening to the Lord. I mean, uh, surely God didn't want us to be destitute. Surely God didn't want us to be poor, have to you know, call upon the other churches for help. But nonetheless, that's where they were. And it doesn't make sense until 70 A.D. 70 A.D., Titus Vespasian comes against Jerusalem. It's the year that Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed and that Israel will cease to be a nation. And as he has his siege walls set around Jerusalem, choking Jerusalem out, he relaxes his grip on the city for a period of time. Josephus tells us about it. And there was a group of people in Jerusalem then that had no ties. Didn't own property anymore. Didn't have businesses. Didn't have all the stuff that held them to that city. And so when Titus relaxed his grip, they walked out. It was the church in Jerusalem. Many times God brings us through fire. He brings us through events, and we look at them and we think, I don't, I'm really sure what that event is all about. But in the work of time, we stop one day and we look back and we can say, oh, gotcha. So Paul, he's gathering this offering for that church. That hasn't occurred yet. The church is poor. 
But Paul's going around with a heart saying, hey, we want to gather things together. So he says, concerning this offering, the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, by the way, what day is that? Sunday, right? That's today. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Hey, Paul didn't want to make a big deal about this. Paul didn't want to put his name in lights. Paul's coming. Everybody get a collection. We're going to raise money. It wasn't a big fundraiser. He said, hey, guys, just set aside money on the first day of the week. And when I come, I'll take what you've set aside. He called the church to do something that they've been doing on a regular basis ever since. Good news, we already passed the basket and we're not passing it again. But the Lord laid out, hey, he wants us to have an attitude of giving. Why? I don't really understand. And for a lot of my life, I didn't get it at all. I, I, you know, church was what I did. I came to church on Sunday. I did church. Then I did everything else the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday. Whatever I want to do, Sunday I came and did church. Sunday was that day I tried to focus on the Lord. That was it. Little by little, God did a a series of events occurred in my life where more and more I was having to look to the Lord Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Things weren't coming together quite right. And so I I finally, at one point in my life, I made a decision. You know, God, I'm I'm just going to seek you with my whole heart. What does the scripture say in Matthew? Seek ye first. What? The kingdom of God and what happens? All these things will be added unto you. All what things? All the things they were worried about. All the things they were fretting over. All the concerns that they had. So, I decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on the Lord and God's kingdom. And I really made that my goal and my aim. And He became the first check that I check off in, in, during the day. From that time forward. And you know what happened? Everything got worse. What was that about? I remember driving down the freeway one day. I was driving down the freeway in California and everything's falling apart. My sandcastle's crumbling and I remember calling out to the Lord, Lord, I'm finally put you first. And all this stuff is happening. All these things are falling apart. What's going on? What's, what's, the, what's the plan? I don't get it. And God just spoke in that still small voice. He just said, do you love me more than these? And I was reminded of a time when Peter in John chapter 21 was there with with Jesus. They just had this great catch and all these fish. And Jesus looking at Peter said, Peter, do you love me more than these? Maybe he was talking about the other disciples. Remember, Peter bragged about how much he loved the Lord. But I think he was talking about the ships, the sea, the fish, the friends. Am I number one, Peter? And that's what the Lord was laying on my heart. Jackie, am I number one? So I said, okay, Lord. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. Here we go. And things got worse. And all these things that I thought were so important in my life, one by one, began to slip away. I had 
spent a lot of time keeping up with the Joneses, so I had a lot of things to slip away. One by one, they went. I'll never forget one day, Kathy and I are coming to church, and we had made a pact together. When, uh, for the first time, when I started following the Lord, started seeking Him, we made a, a pact together. It was our decision, you know, that we would tithe. So we did. I remember one time, she told me, Hey, um, <clears throat> I, I'm, I need you to tell me whether or not we should tithe this week. So I, I don't really have enough for milk, bread, and lunch meat. But we do have a lot of food. So if things get really tight, you know, we, we'll probably be able to go by. But I just wanted to ask you what you thought. And uh, it's one of the few times that I didn't hesitate. And I says, well, give to the Lord first. We went to church that night. And we had boxes like we have here, you know, and we dropped our, our offering in the box, you know, in the back and sat down and pastor began to teach. And as he began to teach, he said, oh, before I get too far, I need to let you guys know that uh, Smith's Market in town closed and they shipped a bunch of milk up here. So if any of you guys need any milk, um, just go into the cafe. We've got like hundreds of gallons. Just take what you need. Well, that was pretty cool. Then he said, he'd get ready to start. And he goes, oh, oh yeah, but the, uh, also they sent a bunch of bread. There's a bunch of bread in there. So if you need bread and milk, it's in there. Grab the bread and milk. And then he went on to teach. And uh, I had a hard time listening to the whole message because I was all stoked about, Wow. God's word says that he'll take care of the things I need. Now, maybe he won't give me a new boat and a new Harley, but he'll give me milk and bread. We were pretty stoked. And so afterwards, I remember Kathy goes running into the back and there's this fellow back there named Tom. And she runs up to Tom and she says, Tom, I got to tell you my story. So she tells this whole story I just shared with you to Tom. And he gets this funny look on his face. And he says, well, then this must be for you. In that whole truck of bread and milk was one pack of lunch meat. <laughs> My God will supply all your needs according to his beautiful grace and power. God is so amazing. So Kathy and I made this pact. The point of the pact is not God's broke. Because he's not. What's the point of the pact? The point of the pact is, Jesus said, where your treasure is, what follows? Your heart. Where my treasure is, my, apparently my treasure was on that heritage soft tail. So now I park it underneath the van. But... God wants our treasure to be Him. And one of the ways to have our treasure be Him is through offering. That's the point. Offering's never about programs or, or procedures or God can't do it. Where God guides, God provides. He opens doors, He makes things happen. Opportunity to give is for me. For me. To keep my focus where it needs to be. In, uh, in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, 
It says this, sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. A treasure in heaven that does not fail. Where no thief approaches or moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. He goes on to say in Luke chapter 6, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, will be measured back to you. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back. As we look at scripture, it lays out for us God's plan, God's direction, God's call. In Malachi chapter 3, the scripture says, Will a man rob God? Well, Lord, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings. Because it's all mine and I gave it to you. And you won't give it to me. You won't open your heart. In Malachi chapter 3 verses 8 through 10, he goes on to say, Test me in this. Try me. See, if I won't open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out on you such a blessing that you can't even hold it. Folks, he's not talking about pouring out more money. He's talking about giving you blessing. Giving you blessing. But listen, this is what he says at the end of verse 10. And I will rebuke the devourer. And you will have the things you need. You know there's a devourer? He eats my checkbook every week. The Lord said, I'll rebuke the devourer. I'll rebuke him. You set this right with me. It's a personal decision, guys, and I'm not trying to lay no heavy load on you. Scripture lays out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He tells us, lay, this is how you give. You give how you purpose in your heart. The next thing he says, not of necessity. You know what that means? Not because you have to. For God loves what? Cheerful giver. So you purpose in your heart. That which you can be cheerful for. And lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust won't destroy. Where thieves won't break in and steal. And this is what Paul is laying out for them here in these first two verses. Hey guys, take up this offering and help out this church. Keep your eyes focused on the prize, on what God wants to do for you. Verse 3 says, And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. Now here's the next thing he says. When you guys give me the the offering, I'm not just going to take it and say, Hey, thanks for money. See you later. Bye. He said, You send people with me. Send people with me so there's accountability. Send people with me so that there's, there's a number of people going together and so that it's going to be accounted to your account as you come to the church and present the gift that you put together in Jerusalem. So Paul's not trying to take all the glory. He doesn't care about glory. Paul doesn't want his name on a billboard. He doesn't want a big banner made somewhere where it has his picture and his name and everybody come see Paul. Who does he want people to see? Jesus. Come see Jesus. That needs to be our heart. That needs to be our attitude. We want to bring people to see Jesus. Verse 4, he says, Now if it is fitting that I go also, then they will come with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. 
For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. Listen, Paul was not afraid of making plans, but here's how he made his plans. Here's where we stumble and fall. Paul understood the scripture tells in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And what will He do? He will direct your steps. So what do we do? We trust in the Lord with all our heart. We pray, God, here are these decisions coming up before me. Guide my plans. And then we lay out our plans and we can end our plans the same way Paul did. If the Lord permits, this is what I'm going to do. But I'm going to be open and willing to be directed by Him however He points, however He directs. Literally, when He says, if the Lord permits, it's a, it's a strong concept, it's a strong statement in the Greek. It's a statement of, I'm going to do whatever God tells me to do. So as long as this is God's plan, this is what will happen. Hey, we know from history something. That wasn't God's plan. Didn't quite work out that way. Paul's going to write about that a little bit when we get into 2 Corinthians. But he, he laid out his plans. He asked for God's blessing ahead of time. He made his plans. And then he was leaning, not in his own understanding, but on the Lord. Direct my steps. No, that door's closed. I'm not going to go that way. Or, or yes, I will go this way. So he's making his plans the way that God wants him to make his plans. He says in verse 8, Hey, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He says, there's a great door. It remains open. I got an opportunity to teach the gospel. And then in the same emphatic, excited speech, he says, and there are many adversaries. He was stoked. He was stoked that this door was open, and he was stoked that the enemy was coming against him. Why should we be stoked if the enemy comes against us? Well, listen, Jesus said, The world will hate you. Just as it hated me, the world will hate you. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Who is going to pour out their hate and derision on the church? The world. Satan. The enemy. That's the enemy of what God's trying to do. So listen, Paul says, this door's open. I'm preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. And the enemy's coming against me. Woohoo! <laughs> When's the last time you felt that way in the middle of a trial? Yippee! Oh, I'm so excited. But see, that's the way Paul was, because he understood something. He looked at those circumstances in his life, and he said, this is proof positive, I'm doing what God wants me to do. Folks, if the world loves you, if the world can't wait to get up in the morning and come give you a big sloppy kiss, if the world is so excited to see you every day, there's a problem. Jesus said the world will hate you. And it won't hate you because you're obnoxious and rude. That's not why the world hates you. The world hates you because the world sees Jesus in you. When the world hates us, we want the world to hate us because of Jesus in me. Not because of 
some goofy, weird thing I'm doing. But because of the light of Jesus shining through me. So, hey, Paul's stoked. He's like, hey, man, this great and effective door is open. There's many adversaries. God's working. So I'm going to stay here for now because God's moving. And he ends up staying there all the way until the time he goes back to Jerusalem. Doesn't end up going back through Corinth. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, thrown into prison, goes to seize Nero. Ultimately, if we follow that line far enough down the road, he loses his head. His plan was to go to Corinth and spend some time with him. God said, no. But this is what I have for you. But God's not going to leave Corinth alone. God's not going to leave him in a place where they don't have the things that they need. He says now in verse 10, Now if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. They sent Timothy. Timothy's going to go. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey uh, in haste, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. So Paul says Timothy. Timothy is Paul's number two. Timothy was that young guy, vibrant, desiring to grow in the Lord. He came alongside, and, and Paul raised him up. And when Paul couldn't go somewhere, he sent Timothy. Hey, Timothy, go, go, take, take the word to them. You see, there's something that God wants us to do, wants us to always be about within the church, and that is raising up people to replace us. Folks, if we don't do that, what happens when we're gone? It's over. It's ended. It's done. What did Paul do? He raised up Timothy. He raised up Timothy. And, and he had a Timothy in just about every place he planted a church. He'd look for somebody he could, he could invest in. God wants us to invest in people. If you're serving here in children's ministry, if you're serving with youth, if you're serving uh, uh, in the bread of life, if you're serving wherever you're serving, God wants you finding people, bringing people alongside, training people up, and then sending them out to continue to do the work that God's calling us to do. There have been a few times in my life I thought, oh, we're never going to survive this loss. But God knows. He has that person. He's got that work that he's going to do in someone's life. And they're going to fill the gap left. And that's what Timothy did. He filled the gap. He filled the gap. Now Paul told him, be nice to Timothy. Timothy had a few troubles. He was, we know that he, he had stomach issues. A lot of people think he was probably a bit of a nervous guy. But when he got to teaching the word... Man, things happen. Things happen. Because it's not about us, right? It's about Him. It's about God moving, shaking, doing His perfect work. So, in verse 12 he says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, Listen, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he'll come when he has a convenient time. Remember Apollos, in the beginning of the chapter, we see that some of the problems they had in Corinth was some people said, I'm of Apollos. Other people said, well, I'm of Paul. Other people said, well, I'm of Cephas. That's Peter. And still others said, well, I'm of Jesus. They, they had all this division. But you see, the problem wasn't between Paul and Apollos. Nor was Paul ever worried about sharing time with Apollos. Ever. Paul said, hey, 
I told Apollos, come on down, man, to Church of Corinth. Go visit him. But you know what? He had too much stuff going on right now. He doesn't have time. But when he does, he's going to come. But Paul wasn't worried about it. You know, that, folks, there are a lot of preachers in this world that hold on to a pulpit so tight they never want to give anyone an opportunity to grow, to learn, and to teach. Oh, that's not how I was raised. I was raised up by a man who was not afraid to have other people teach. To have other people share. Because that's how people are raised up. That's how it happens. Pastor Gerald would have me teach anytime he was gone. Give me opportunity. Give me a chance to, to, to work through the, the different things that God does in my life. And he did that because he was not afraid. Not afraid. Some, some preachers are afraid. They're afraid that if they give that opportunity, they're going to try to take over the church. Then where are they going to be? What does the Bible say? We said Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not. Where? On your own understanding. But Lord, I don't understand. Good. You're not supposed to lean on that. You lean into the Lord. You press into Him. And allow God to do that work. We see that in Paul's life. Paul was not afraid. Paul gave opportunity to Timothy. He was willing to give opportunity to Apollos. He just wanted one thing to occur. What was that? People to hear about Jesus. Not people to hear about Paul. People to hear about Jesus. Guys, I believe in the bottom of my heart that God wants to do a new thing. He wants to pour out a revival on us corporately together. But more than just, not about us, more than just us, He wants to do this in our town, in our, in our county, in our state. God wants to do a work. That's why He said, listen, look at the harvest. It's white. It's ripe. It's ready. So pray that the Lord would send what? Laborers to go into the fields. Who gives the harvest? Jesus does. What are, what's our job? Plant and water, right? Plant and water. Plant and water. But guys, if we're going to be effective and go and do the things that I believe God's calling us to do, then it's got to start in our life first, in our heart. Where's my heart? Am I right with God right now? Am I where I need to be with Him? Am I more concerned with myself than I am with Jesus Christ? Are these, is this junk inside of me? Because listen, all God wants us to do is to take that junk and repent of it, give it to the Lord, lay it down at the cross, move forward. And watch what God will do. Watch what happens when God turns a world upside down. When He turns your world upside down. When He shakes loose all those things that we hold on to. And they drop to the side, here, there, before us, behind us. Until all that's left is our hand in His hand. And what greater thing to be holding on to? And then He does it. He does it. We want that work. We want Him to do that work. And then in verse 13, He gives us His little conclusion. Here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I'm saying to you guys. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. He says, watch. How many times in the Bible does it say watch? Watch. Watch and pray. Watch 
for that roaring lion, the enemy who's looking for the stragglers to see who he might devour. Watch and pray for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't he tell us to do that? That's, that's irrevocable. In the scripture, we're called to watch. So the first thing he lays out for us, hey, I want you to be watching. I want you to be looking. I think we should be aware of the schemes of the enemy, right? We need to be aware. This is the, Paul would write, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the schemes of the enemy, what the devil does. So we want to be watching out for those things, but that shouldn't encompass our, our watching our watching should be for the Lord. Hey guys, in, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told a, a parable. Listen, let me share this parable with you. In Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 40. You can turn there with me if you want. It says, Therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, do you speak this parable only to us or to all people? And the Lord said, Who is the faithful and wise steward, whom the master will make ruler over his house, to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant when his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will make him a ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, he begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Jesus said, Don't be a lazy watcher. Don't be that person who says, Yeah, yeah, they've been saying for years Jesus is coming soon. Whatever, I mean, he ain't been here so far. Doesn't Peter have something to say about that? In the last day, scoffers will come, saying, ever since it has always been this way, it's always been like this. People say, here he comes, but he's not there. But Peter goes on to say, God's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering, desiring that no one would perish. He waits. But he asks you and I to watch. Why? When Paul says, watch, I want you to watch. Be watchers looking for Jesus. Folks, when I'm looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith, it changes the way I live, doesn't it? If I'm looking unto Jesus, if I'm saying, there is no reason Jesus can't come for me today. There's no reason that Jesus can't call right now. Called the doctrine of imminence all throughout the scripture. There's nothing that is standing in the way of the return of Jesus Christ. And so he says, watch, watch, watch. So that changes the way we live. What did he say happens if you get lazy? Oh, you go get drunk, you go party, you go do all these things. Folks, there's probably not a person here among us who can't look at an example and say, you know what, there was a time in my life when I was following the Lord, but then, you know, I just kind of got caught up in the worldly things and doing all this other stuff, eat, drink, you know, be merry. And next thing I knew, I was drifting away from the Lord. Why? I wasn't watching. I wasn't watching. He says, watch. Watch out for your enemy. 
Because he's going to come to trip you up and keep your eyes looking for Jesus. Because that's our motivation. That's the reason we get up in the morning. That's why we go do the things we do. Because we're looking for Jesus. We're looking for His return. We're looking for Him to come, to call on our name. To look into His eyes and and hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we desire. That's what we want. That's what we want to see in Him. So He says, Here's the first thing I want you to do. Watch. Watch. Keep your eyes peeled. Then He says, Stand fast in the faith. He wants us to stand fast. That means do not give up ground. Stand fast. Folks, we're praying for a revival. I I, I want to see God pour out His Spirit like He poured out His Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and see this whole place change. But it started with 120 disciples gathered in an upper room praying together, unified together, looking for the outpouring of the Spirit of God to change their world. And what happened? It came. That's what God's calling us to. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and what? Pray. Pray. Man, we pray together. Nothing can stand in the way. Nothing can stop what God wants to do. Does it mean everything's going to get better? Probably not. Sorry. But it'll be good. It'll be good. Stand fast. Don't give up ground. Anytime I think about standing fast, I think about the mighty men of David. You ever heard the story of the mighty men of David? Man, I used to love the story of the mighty men of David. <clears throat> it's in, uh, where am I? Second Samuel, chapter 23. Um, I'm just going to share a little bit with you. Second Samuel 23, verse uh, 8 through 12. These are the names of the mighty men that David had. Josheb Bathshebeth, the Tachamite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he killed 800 men at one time. You know anybody like that? Most of the time you see that in movies. And you say things like, yeah, whatever. The Bible says this guy, the first of David's mighty men, killed 800 guys at one time. Why? The story tells us he wouldn't give up ground. He trusted in the Lord with all his heart. He didn't lean into his own understanding. He didn't say, there's no way I can stand against this many. He said, I'm not giving up ground. God told me to stand. I'm going to stand. And 800 fell. Now those are stories we love to hear. Those are exciting things. Exciting things indeed. Scripture goes on to say, Now, one of, the, one of the three mighty men that was with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, the men of Israel retreated, <coughs> but he arose and attacked. What's he say? He said, listen, this guy, he, this, uh, this other guy, he was to, to guard a field of beans. You know, the enemy would come in and steal their harvest. So David said, guard the beans. And the Philistines came against that field, and all the army that was with him retreated. They all left. What did he do? No, no, no. God said, stand fast. Don't give up ground. He attacked. And by himself, God delivered the enemy into their hands. And the mighty men of David were 
incredible. Hardcore, man. These guys were, it was crazy. In fact, it, the story is told of one of them. He fought for so long with his sword that when the battle was over, they couldn't take the sword out of his hand. His hand was so tight on the sword, they couldn't even pry it out. That's what happens when we stand fast, right? We stand fast. What's our sword? The Word of God. The Word of God is our sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to divide asunder the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Man, God's Word is able to do all this. And what is it that Paul says? I want you to watch and I want you to stand fast. Don't give up ground. Have we given up ground in our country? Yeah. We've given up ground right and left. We're backpedaling. God wants to do a revival. He says, stop retreating. Stand firm. Stand fast. Don't back away. Don't back down. Just look to the Lord. God, what is it that you want to do? Not leaning into our own understanding. What can I do? The problem's so big. What can I do? Man, you, if you change one, you change the world. You know that, right? One person is the world. The Jews firmly believe you save the life of one person. You save the world. So when we take the baby bottles that we have outside and we put all our change in them and we turn those into the Pregnancy Crisis Center and then some, some girl comes in the Pregnancy Crisis Center who's funded because we give and they're able to counsel her and that baby is born and given up for adoption and the family raises that child, you have saved the world. What do you mean, what can you do? You can do what you can. Who's the one that gives the harvest? God, what are we supposed to do? Plant and water. Watch, stand fast. And then he says, be brave. Why does he have to tell us to be brave? Oh, because we're not. (laughs) That's why. If you have a King James Version, it says, act like a man. Not all the dumb ways that you can act like a man. What it's talking about is what we, what we see here. Be brave. Be brave. Man, it, don't we have to be brave in order to stand fast when everybody else is running? Don't you have to be brave to, to make your stand for the Lord? God wants us to make a stand, doesn't He? God wants us to stand for Him. Not for us. Not so that people will notice us. God wants us to make a stand for Him. That we might bring glory and honor unto Him. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah was given the job. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king. And he heard that they were having trouble rebuilding Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, he goes back. It's after the the Babylonian captivity. And Nehemiah, he asks his buddies, hey, how's it going? And they say, it's not going very good. You know, every time we start to build the wall, the enemy comes against us and they fight and they tear down the wall. We can't get nothing done. So Nehemiah comes to try to help them. In Nehemiah chapter 4, he says, verse 13, Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the opening, and I set people according to their families. With their swords, their spears, their bows. 
And I looked and I arose and I said to the nobles, to the leaders and the rest of the people, Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Nehemiah said, Stand in the gap for your family. Scripture goes on to say they fought with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And they rebuilt the city. And who were they defending? Their families. They're defending their families. When the scripture lays out for us, I want you to be brave. Be brave. He wants us to defend our kids, our sons, and our daughters. Why is it that we want to be active in this world and and bring about revival and see something change? Because this is the world that I'm giving to my kids. And I didn't leave it like I found it. I messed it all up. And they're still messing it up. Now maybe I can't change everyone in the world, but I can stand in the gap for my kids. I can fight for them. I can protect them. Nehemiah put each man in a place where he washed out for his family. And the word, guys, is masculine. He's talking to men. Stand in the gap for your family. Stand in the gap for your kids. Stand in your gap for those who aren't willing to stand in the gap. We had the community prayer on Saturday. It was a neat time. The community came together. We had a time of prayer, and a, and a fellow named Sam Fowler, he shared. He, he's doing a work. He uh, uh, was a pastor, I think, at Twin Falls Nazarene. He may still be there. I don't know. But he's working Boys and Girls Club mostly now. And one of the things he shared with us, I kind of liked it. He said, you know, kids want people who are willing to be muddy and messy with them. To get down in the dirt. To get there with them and, and invest their lives. We've all heard that saying, right? They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You try to straighten them out. You can say, oh, kids are all screwed up today. And we can say there's nothing I can do. And let nothing happen. Or we can be brave. Stand in the gap for the kids. Stand in the gap for our families. This is what Paul is leaving them with. Hey, guys, stand fast. Be brave. Stand in the gap for your family. Hit your knees for your children. Pray for the youth. You know, for the first time in many years, Sam Fowler shared, this is one of the first generations when people were asked, would you like to be a kid today, that people say, no. Well, that's nice. We did that, didn't we? Well, if we didn't do it, it happened on our watch. So he says, be brave. Pray. Be a part of a solution. Be part of a solution to affect the people around us. To affect revival. But where's it going to start? It don't start out there. Where's it start? Right here. It starts in my heart. Then in my family. In my children. In my neighborhood. In my church. 
in my community. That's how it starts. It doesn't start out there. It starts in here. You and me first. The last thing he says then, be strong. He calls them to be strong. Make your stand. I had this saying when I did youth group. I said, don't be a weak-kneed, slack-jawed, spineless, jellyfish Christian. God wants us to be strong. He says, be brave because we're not. He says, be strong because we need to. We need to be strong in what? Him. We've got to be strong in the Lord. Nobody cares how much you can bench press. That's not going to help you in the spiritual battles of life. Nobody cares how fast you can run. The Bible says that, that uh, you know, working out, being physical, it's good for you. But that's not the kind of strength you need to rely on. He wants us to rely on His strength. Joshua 1.9, the Lord said, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Only be strong. We got to be strong in Him. We got to be strong in the Lord. Folks, if God's going to do this revival, this is an opportunity for us to take a look at ourselves and say, Where am I at? Am I watching? Am I standing fast? Am I standing in the gap? Am I brave? Am I strong in the Lord? Because if that's not where we're at, God wants us to. Get there. And watch the work that he does. Because he's going to do a work. The question is, are we going to be a part of it? Are we going to be a part of what God does? I mean, we're, we're probably one of the most loving fellowships around. People are hurting. We get together and we try to do what we can to help out. When John Avery needed help for, for uh, surgery in his battle against cancer, we came together. We, we helped him out. When Roy needed to have somebody help her out so that she could uh, get an eye, we came together. We banded together to help her out. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Sure it is. Sure it is. That's good. Very good. I consider it an honor to even be able to be in this place and serve with you all. But I think God wants more. Not for us to do more. He wants more of us. More of us. Our hearts, our minds, our strength. He wants us to pour it out into His hands and watch what God does. David's last words to his son Solomon... I go the way of the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. Man after God's own heart. To the last words he would say to his son. Be strong. Prove yourself a man. Be brave. Be courageous. And then Paul goes on to tell us, look, let all that you do be done with love. So... Not only does he want us to be, to watch, to stand fast, to be brave, and to be strong, but he wants you to do all those things with love as your motivation. I can be brave and not loving. I could be strong and not loving. I could watch 
and not be loving. What does he want me to do? He says, let everything you do be done with love. By the way, the word is phileo. That means that you really care. That you really care about people. What did Jesus say? How will they know you're my disciples? By how strong you are, how well you watch, that you never give up ground, that you're brave, that you're courageous. He said, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love each other. That's our job. Folks, if we see someone in church ever sitting by themselves, shame on us if we haven't given them a hug. But they don't look very friendly. Well, I don't care. It doesn't say, let everything be done with love as long as they look friendly. He says, let everything be done with love. If we see someone sitting by themselves, someone standing by themselves, we should each look at it as it's my responsibility to make sure every person through the door feels the love of Christ when they come here. Period. Every person. Why do we greet one another in the morning so we have an opportunity to do that? Look around, see someone who's just sitting there like that sourpuss. I'm not, I don't care what he says, I ain't hugging nobody. Go hug him. Go get him. Sick him with the love of God and see what happens. God will do a work. That's what he wants from us. That's how we change our world, guys. One life at a time. Just like that. Not getting overwhelmed by all the bigness. No. One life at a time. One person at a time. Loving, pouring out the love of God upon them. He says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that it's the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. So you also submit to such, and everyone who works and labors with us. He calls out a family by name. He says, this whole family is dedicated to serve in the ministry. Sometimes... There have been occasions in my life where I say something like, you know, my first ministry is to my family. True. Sort of. Your first ministry is to the Lord. And the first ones that you should be ministering to are your family. And what does your family need? Paul called out Stephanus. He said, hey, these guys are serving the Lord, their whole family. They're serving the Lord. They're all a part of it. They're not complaining about somebody else could do it or somebody else should do it or we're too busy or we don't have time, blah, 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 blah. They're saying, hey, they're serving. They're doing. They're a part. And he called them out by name. The other day, I come, well, actually it was Thursday. We were... The worship team was here, gathered together in prayer. And you start hearing all this ruckus going on. Ruckus. Uh, that's bracket noise happening. <clears throat> Things banging on walls and vacuum cleaners starting and dusting beginning and all this craziness going on. And we finished praying. It was cool. It didn't interrupt us, but we could hear stuff was happening. And I come out, go out the door, and, and lo and behold, what do I see? The papics. And here I am studying the scripture, Stephanus, and the whole family together. 
I walk outside. There's a Papix. Mom, dad, brother, sister, walking, vacuuming, dusting, doing. Or they, they got a lot of opportunity. They could say, you know what? We have like 47 kids. There's no way we can, we can do all this. But their first ministry is to their family. And the Bible says, raise up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. So they make that an opportunity to serve in ministry. And, you know, it's, a, it's again, an honor to serve in a body that has people like that. That's not a single, you know, part of this body. That's multiplied over and over and over again. I see people all the time, their families, their kids coming, they're doing worship, they're giving of themselves, they're serving. That is exactly what God wants of us. But He wants more of us. Not more time. More of us. More of our heart. More of who we are. He wants us to lay those things down at His altar. To lay them down at His feet and watch what God does with it all. He says, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus and Fortinaeus and Achaicus for what was lacking on your part they supplied. For they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. He's saying, hey, you need to give honor to the people who do that, to people who serve, to people who give, to people who are part of all those processes. Paul says, give them honor because, hey, man, they're doing what's lacking. If, if they weren't stepping up and being a part, then, well, God will call somebody else to do it, but we're missing out on a blessing. He's saying, hey, this is good. These are good things. Verse 19, he goes on, The churches of Asia greet you. Now he's going to give them a greeting. Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. If you ever get asked on Bible trivia, which one is the husband and which one is the wife, I'll help you out. Just this once unless we're playing against you. <clears throat> Aquila is the husband. Priscilla, Presca, is the wife. Greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Hey, well, they, they were in Corinth when the church of Corinth started. They moved to Ephesus, helping out Paul in Ephesus. Now they're in Ephesus and the church is in their house. They got a, a fellowship. They've opened up their house. They're willing to have people over. They're willing to pour into someone else's life. Raise up another Timothy. Raise up another one to go and do likewise. But we can't do it on an island. We do it together. As we stand together. As we work together. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, when I was in church... And I heard the preacher said I could greet... The brethren with a holy kiss, I had all kind of plans. So just in case there's anybody in high school, or, or maybe first year of college, that's not what it's talking about. <laughs> Greet one another with a holy kiss. It was a, it was a form of greeting in Middle Eastern culture. They would come up, in fact, if you go to Russia today, where the Eastern Orthodox churches, you would experience the exact same thing. The first time you meet a family in Russia, they're going to come over, give you a kiss on each one of the cheeks, and welcome you. That's what they do. 
That's what he's talking about. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's not a passionate kiss, it's a hello. It's a way of greeting. And then he says, now this salutation with my own hand. And then Paul begins to write for himself. Because up until this time, he's got a secretary writing it down and he's giving it in dic- dictation. He's giving dictation and, she, and, and the secretary is writing it out. And then he says, now this part I'm going to write with my own hand. So it's, it immediately from this point got sloppier. And then he says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Well, it's let him be cursed. Let him be under the wrath of God. That's what anathema is. If anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, then let him be under the wrath of God. We all have a choice, right? To whom we will present ourselves, slaves to obey, that one, slaves we are. Slave of the world, slave of Jesus Christ. But we're going to serve somebody. And what did he tell us in the beginning? We talked about giving. How are we supposed to give? With a cheerful heart, right? Because why? Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why. That's the motivation. Because we love Him. So he says, if anyone doesn't love Him, be, let him be anathema, maranatha. You heard of that phrase before, right? Maranatha means, O Lord, come. Now, Paul said that like 2,000 years ago. Oh, Lord, come. Do you think Paul expected the Lord to come in his lifetime? I think so. He uses the, the term we, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, or, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Everywhere he's talking about the return of the Lord, he says, We, we eagerly wait for the returning of our Lord Jesus Christ, eagerly looking because why? He's watching. For the return of Jesus Christ. He's standing fast. Not giving up any ground. He's going to be brave. He's going to be strong. And he's going to love. And it compels him to say Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. Oh Lord come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me?